with immigrant students of color, whether they're documented or otherwise, the perception of not belonging seemed to play a significant role in terms of how they were policed in and around the school system. Many are working full-time jobs and they'll work uh, from when school ends until midnight and then uh, go back home and do their homework in the middle of the night. The 1994 Gun-Free Schools Act uh, changed everything. It gave the police a real foothold into the schools and school resource officers were no longer the friendly cop who gave you, you know, who walked around and gave you the high five, but now they were people who would come in and try and figure out gang activity, bust it up, and uh, arrest people at the one place that they knew they would be. Stories of teachers and administrators that have taken a stance and are trying to keep students away from falling into this sort of spiral of this deportation is significant and I hope it inspires other teachers and administrators to see that they have agency within these sort of constrained environments. Juhi, Patricia, and Duke, welcome to the show. Um, do you mind just starting out, maybe starting with Juhi, do you want to introduce you, yourself and your work, just a, kind of a brief overview of who you are and what you do? Um, sure, yeah. Um, I'm Juhi Verma, and um, I'm a scholar of immigration policy, and I work mostly on surveillance and kind of macro-level uh, migration policy issues in my areas are South Asia, um, the Swana region, which is more commonly known as the Middle East and North America. And um, so one of my projects is this school to deportation pipeline, which was a collaborative effort with Patricia and Duke. And um, so in terms of kind of the origin of this, um, it, it was inspired by my previous research on the oil industry migrant workers who got trafficking visas and their kids um, were having difficulties in the school system. They weren't used to being policed and under surveillance in these ways. So that was kind of the initial inspiration, but I think what's really made this project is how we came together in terms of being able to collect the data across different cities and then also with our different specializations of being able to bring out the nuances of race and the education system and immigration as a intersectional analysis. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. So before we, I know we got so much detail to go into, um, maybe Patricia, do you want to kind of tell us about yourself? Sure. Uh, I am a professor of sociology uh, at Texas Tech University. I focus on the sociology of education. Um, I think schools are fascinating places um, to be able to see not only how people are taught things that affect them for the rest of their life, but also how people are socialized and interact with larger um, bureaucratic systems uh, in America. Um, I mostly have been looking at how uh, morality is taught and formed in schools um, in conjunction with some work on charter schools and Teach for America. And so I got really interested in how students are taught about what race is um, and what race they are, particularly immigrant students, um, which led me to work with these two wonderful people um, for the last eight years on on this sort of a project. Nice, awesome. Yeah, Duke, do you wanna introduce yeah, yourself? I'm an associate professor and the incoming department chair at Cal State East Bay in uh, Hayward, California. And my research focuses on um, uh, 
racial inequality and racial formation. I'm currently working on a book that uh, explores the impacts of racism on white Americans. Um, obviously, uh, people of color, especially black and indigenous people of color, suffer the greatest forms of discrimination. Um, but this book explores how the impact of racism on whites um, isn't uniform and that uh, elite whites, upper-class whites, uh, and men, white men, uh, receive much more, many more benefits from racism and <laughs> while, yeah. uh, a lot of time working-class whites and uh, women who are white um, are getting uh, negative impacts from the racism that oftentimes they support themselves. Um, so that's a project as well as uh, working on this and looking at uh, the racial formation of immigrants as they integrate into a new society and uh, and then exploring how that happens in schools. Excellent. So maybe uh, just to continue on the thread, maybe we can, if, uh, you know, I know obviously this is since this is a three, we got all four of us in here. Um, it, it's going to be tricky to kind of uh, you know, have to decide who's going to say what, but I think we just kind of organically see who kind of feels the most interested in talking um, about each aspect. But I kind of want to figure out before we dive into your the story of how you all, how you all met and the specifics of each of your specifics. Maybe you could talk about um, what is that what is at stake right before the pandemic hit. What uh, what it was at stake in in everything that you're studying, especially with the school to deportation pipeline. And like, could you describe like, what is the, what are you concerned about there? Like what, yeah, what is at stake uh, in terms of power and justice? And, and then we'll move forward from there. But this is kind of just to, just to kind of outline some of the problems that we see, and then we can get more toward what, uh, what it looks like to kind of solve and, and work toward a future of that toward the end of the show. Sure, well, the, the school to deportation pipeline um, grew out of some of our understanding of the school to prison pipeline, um, which is uh, very well researched um, and been looked at since uh, Anne Arnett Ferguson um, wrote um, Bad Boys about, oh God, uh, 20 years ago or so at this point. And of course the school to prison pipeline is talking about the fact that um, people of color, particularly uh, black boys, are over-disciplined and over-policed in schools. And so what happens is that a lot of the times when the, the boys are disciplined in schools, what would have previously been um, a visit to the principal's office or detention after school or some sort of school-level punishment like that, um, now the police are called in. Um, and that's for a variety of structural and, and legal reasons, um, mostly having to do with zero tolerance policies. Um, zero tolerance policies are the idea that in schools there should be zero tolerance for certain types of offenses, mainly regarding those that are uh, drug related um, or that are violent. And then the principals and the teachers have to call in the police um, or they could possibly lose their licenses or go to jail themselves. So this is a way that uh, the criminal justice uh, system is now reaching into schools. And then when those boys who previously, you know, they were fighting, let's say, and let's say previous to zero tolerance policies, they would have been called into the principal's office, they would have been yelled at, they would have gotten detention. Um, but now they're arrested and now they have a criminal justice record, right? right? 
Um, and so one of the things that we saw with that is, well, we know that uh, there are obviously a lot of immigrants in America who are people of color. What's happening in schools with them, particularly those who may be a little bit worried about documentation status um, and who may have a, a, a double strike against them um, when it comes to the criminal justice system. So there's a lot at stake here. Um, for the millions of immigrant children that we have in American schools. Excellent. That's a great overview. And maybe um, to transition into some of the details, you know, what what is something that a student, uh, you know, can, what are, what are, what can happen in the classroom that leads to something like the zero tolerance policies what is it? What does the framework look like? Because I know there are like SROs inside of schools. Maybe you all could talk about what, like, you know, what exactly is in place and why, how did police even get into our schools? I don't know if that is an interest or the kind of the little bit of the history of how, how exactly did, did the police like get into schools and why and who stands to gain from that? You know what I mean? And then, and then maybe kind of run through if you have any uh, specific, you know, cases that you want to talk about that are like, that are of interest that are, that kind of really exemplify what it looks like to be, what it looks and feels like to be a student of color who, who is concerned about, uh, documentation and then going through trying to just graduate from school and then ends up getting caught in this pipeline. Sure. So I can speak to the immigration piece, right, that in terms of the linking of immigration enforcement to the school system, this is something that's been going on for nearly a decade now, but certainly has been heightened with the last administration and also with the administration before the Obama administration. And so part of that is the sort of expansive um, infrastructure that came about with the Department of Homeland Security after 9-11 of um, a variety of issues that were not considered to be security related issues being now under that umbrella. And that also the policing of immigration is not just at the physical border, but within. Uh-oh. We, oh, lost, we, we lost you there. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. Maybe you could kind of restart that segment just for the sake of, I think you were doing That was great. Um, so maybe just describe the history of the school to, de- school to prison and then deportation pipeline and how that. Um, sure. You know. Yeah. So I think just to kind of understand the backdrop of immigration enforcement. So for the last decade, it's been heightened in terms of moving beyond just the physical border and policing on the border to the homeland. And part of that shift has been um, or the, a more significant shift was after 9-11 with the establishment of Department of Homeland Security where a lot, uh, a number of issues that were simply procedural before were now within the umbrella of security, national security. And so in step with that, um, immigration enforcement at the national level is now linked at the state and you know municipal level. And so what we found in terms of our work was that Whereas, you know, as Patricia talked about with there's a school to prison pipeline that already exists in terms of the linking of our education and criminal justice system, that now part of that enforcement and funding is also linked to immigration enforcement. 
And so with immigrant students of color, whether they're documented or otherwise, um, the perception of not belonging seemed to play a significant role in terms of how they were policed in and around the school system. And I think, you know, there, there are a number of various cases, but I'll share one, which is of a student that um, had transferred to a public school, but um, in an affluent area. And she would speak about how, um, even though she's in this sort of, um, you know, in a school where she has gone through the testing to be in that space, every morning she would find herself policed by the, the local security around the school as not belonging. So, you know, it, it, she wasn't tardy, she wasn't late, there wasn't an actual breach of any sort of school level rules, but just the perception of not belonging because she, you know, is seen as not either belonging to that school or in more extreme cases, not to the country, would result in a lot of disciplining and surveillance. And so we would see patterns like that in various degrees within the data. Yeah, so I'm going to, I'm sorry, Duke, I'm going to jump in and clarify. So yeah. I think if you want to understand immigration policing in schools, you've got to understand two things. Um, the first one is SROs, as you mentioned before. SROs are school resource officers, which essentially is a lovely euphemism for police in schools. The first time we saw SROs in schools was actually in the mid-20th century in Michigan. I want to say it was 1953, 1954, something like that. School resource officers have been a law around for a long time. The whole idea was to have your friendly neighborhood cop in the schools um, so that people would start associate the children would start associating police with, you know, somebody who gives them a high five in the hallway, right? right. Um, the 1994 Gun-Free Schools Act uh, changed everything about that. Um, this was, in my opinion, a law based on fear of gangs, um, particularly gangs that were black gangs um, in inner city schools. And so it gave the police a real foothold into the schools and school resource officers were no longer the friendly cop who gave you, you know, who walked around and gave you the high five. But now they were people who would come in and try and figure out gang activity, bust it up um, and uh, arrest people at the one place that they knew they would be school. Right. right? Where they already had them detained in a certain sense. You already know where they are. You know where they are. Right. Um, the second thing that you need to understand about this is I think 287G agreements. Um, 287G agreements are agreements that the federal government, that the Department of Homeland Security can make with local law enforcement in particular areas of the country that essentially deputize that local law enforcement to be immigration agents, to be immigration officials. Um, and so, for example, I'm in Texas, which obviously is a border state, right, with Mexico. We have oh, I'm going to get the number wrong, but it's like 37 counties that have 287G agreements, which means that de facto we have any police officer can be, a, a, have a limited, um, be a limited ICE agent is the best way to put it. Um, and so this provides an even more obvious way for immigration policing to enter schools, right? Because if you've got those, the, the, the 1994 Act plus 287G agreements, well, you've got immigration agents wherever you want to be in schools. Right. And is there, is there any, I know you're saying um, 
you're putting different like timestamps on a lot of these processes. Do you know the relationship between when the concept and the kind of propaganda of super predators came around in regards to probably black and Latinx like communities as far as like demonizing demonizing a brown youth essentially in the sense that they were they were called super predators and then I feel like this justifies even more so where it's like an overblown um, concern for drugs and violence and general crime or or unreasonable behaviors, uh, misdemeanors and su- and stuff like that that could eventually puts put students under the spotlight under the heat of the police much e- much more easily to the point where maybe they're just writing on a desk or something and that leads that it's just a process of escalation is there any anything interesting there that uh, that anyone wants to talk talk to Duke. um i i can't speak to to the onset of, of this concept of the super predator um mm-hmm. but i do think it you know it plays a role in the way that uh black and latino youth are are stereotyped and um, stereotyped as criminals and you know because uh so many of the the students in in the schools we study are coming from central america and are, are latino themselves they they're facing this double whammy of being an immigrant and being a student of color from a from a marginalized uh, ethnic group and and so they 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 face that double whammy um and then and then on top of it they face uh, discrimination in terms of language when um when they speak english with an accent or or uh, have limited english ability and and all three of these things uh combine to to kind of single them out as uh as being a threat to the school and so the mild infractions of uh of showing up late for school or of um uh uh, not being uh you know not doing exactly what the teacher says or not doing well in their classes all of these things single them out and they're also they're also kind of on guard because a lot of the students are going through immigration proceedings that they've been um outside of school or like in their in their daily lives outside of school and so they right they they enter the country and um are usually detained and then uh have been released from detention to a family member or somebody an adult who agrees to take responsibility for them while they're waiting for their um trial to to learn if they are going to receive some sort of uh, legal status, and mm-hmm. so they're on they're on edge during this period, and so that uh, the, and then facing discrimination from these multiple angles um, can really put them put them in a tight place where the the school uh, authorities, the teachers, the SROs um, have so much power and authority over the students can can really wreck their lives in a minute. Right. It seems like they're put in an emotionally vulnerable position in and outside of the school system. And so therefore they're kind of tiptoeing on eggshells throughout not only 
the teacher, the, the other students around them, maybe they're going through a process of like otherization, uh, you know, to where they're, they're not even seen as the us that is whatever this like identity imaginary is. And then they're also, then there's the police who is the state kind of apparatus surveying their behavior and making sure that like, okay, be ready. Cause you're, we, you, we've, we've already taken note that you are one of the, you are in the group of people who we suspect so that everything that you do is going to be seen as potentially criminal intent even though you might just be late or you might just be, you know, maybe you could talk about, and by you, I mean, any, any of the three of you or all three of you at once, um, the idea of like, what are the things that would cause, I like this, the specificity of like tardiness. And I have in my notes here from just kind of reading some of that, uh, yeah, uh, loitering, stuff like that, transportation delays. Um, I'm just curious what are some of the things you noticed in your research as the things that like you could describe kind of like uh, the maybe an anecdote or just what it would look like for why would someone be running late? Why, why maybe do students of color, um, you know, and Latino students, why do they tend, why would they be running late maybe, or be have challenges that would make them potentially later uh, to be tardier or to be, or to have, you know, these things that, that cause them more suspicion because of class and racial dynamics. Yeah. Uh, want me to answer your question about super predators too? Oh yeah. Let's go, let's go for it. <laughs> um, so I know this because I took a class from him. Um, but John DeLulio, who is a professor at the university of Pennsylvania coined the term in the 1990s, um, oh. to refer to, um, uh, he, I seem to recall he was very careful about not using race in his definition, but it was the person who um, was a recidivist who was in and, and kept on doing the bad things, right? Okay. Um, and that was not just committing petty crime, but committing crime that would have a disproportionate effect on the people around him. And yeah, the term him was used. This was very clearly in reference to males and, um, and looking at how it's been applied, it's black males, right? right. And John DeLulia became... Um, while I, while I was at school, he became the director of face-based initiatives under the Bush administration. Mm -hmm. um, so I remember him coming up to and talking about that and talking about how he was um, affecting some policy uh, on the federal level. Um, and of course, this is immediately before 9-11. Um, right. But I, I think that uh, the federal government certainly gained in power um, after September 11, 2001. Um, so that's a uh, certainly a term that's not really used anymore, but I think the reverberations of that term are still being seen in a lot of both federal and state law. Right. And I think just building on that, this notion of deviance, right, is hmm. kind of underlying much of our research and many of the policies that we're looking into, because it's expanded from sort of a, a school level, you know, not following basic rules of what your teacher tells you, to a threat to your community and society. And then of course, when you add the immigration infrastructure to it, is the notion of deviance expands um, even more significantly in terms of, well, are you a threat to the nation? And that has been such a subjective and vague sort of set of factors. And um, so I think part of um, what both Patricia and Duke have touched upon 
is how that plays out into the everyday. Like we've spoken about, um, you know, being tardy or perhaps like hanging out in front of school or in the hallways. And you're right to bring up that um, what we found is that much of that has to do with things outside of school as well. In terms of class background, we found a number of students that, you know, are late because they're commuting from faraway schools to public schools, but, you know, more resource public schools, or that they have other commitments to their families in terms of taking care of siblings or maybe even working, you know, while going to school. Um, and all of those play a role. And I think what's significant is a compounded effect as well, because many of the students reported being harassed um, and under surveillance even during their commute to school. So often some of them would be tardy because you know they're on a train or they're on a bus and they were sort of put, pulled aside for something minor. And um, so how that affects within the school is that there's this notion that they're not committed to education, that their families don't value education, and that in somehow they're not fitting into the infrastructure. Um, so I, I think one of the things which stood out to me from our findings was that, you know, often the narrative around structural exclusion in terms of racism um, kind of pits different racial groups against each other, particularly Black and Latinx communities as sort of a problem minority and Asian Americans as a, as a model minority. And what we find in terms of the data is that given the way immigration exclusion operates, you know, deviance expands into whether you're co cohesive in terms of language, in terms of, you know, similar backgrounds and how you relate to the education system, your family structure. And so, what I think is intriguing about the possibilities of this research for practice is the points of solidarity, that if we're seeing the same patterns across these different racial groups in terms of how they're being policed and under surveillance, we're talking about bigger infrastructure of exclusion that has much more to do with, you know, any particular group and their sort of presumed um, values and qualities and things like that. Right, yeah. Does anyone want to add something? If I yeah. could add, yeah, if I could add, um, the, uh, to, to, to speak to the challenges that a lot of students are facing outside of the school. Um, you know, uh, in, in Northern California, um, as, min, as many as, as much as 60% of uh, the immigrant students in the schools were undocumented students who had crossed the Southern US border by themselves. And so we're talking, um, what, 13, 12, 13, 14 year old kids who are uh, coming from Central America and crossing the border by themselves. The majority of girls who we had talked to had experienced sexual assault and rape uh, during that uh, process. And then uh, come to a, a living situation where uh, they're living with folks who aren't usually their immediate family um, who may, uh, you know, are, are sticking their heads out for, for the, sticking, sticking their necks out, excuse me, for the students. Um, but the living situation is really tough where they may uh, be living a dozen people in a, in a one bedroom kind of apartment. Uh, and the students are, I mean, can, if you can imagine a 12 or 13 year old who can't, who has the wherewithal to, to cross country borders 
by themselves. These are driven students, and they're right. they're fleeing uh, violence, they're fleeing gang violence, um, they're uh, fleeing some incredibly powerful social forces, um, and they're very motivated, incredibly motivated to be here. And so, uh, many are working full time jobs, and they they uh, leave school in the afternoon and go work as a busser or um, go uh, work in, in some sort of family-owned business where they can get paid under the table. And they'll work uh, from when school ends until midnight hmm. and then uh, go back home and do their homework in the middle of the night and wake up the next morning um, and, and, and head to school ready to try to learn again. And so the, they're facing all of these obstacles. They're living in an unstable situation, uh, facing surveillance at work, facing surveillance on their commute from work to school, uh, to home. And so it's it's easy for someone, a student in that situation who's like incredibly motivated. I mean, students are resilient, the, uh, very resilient young people um, and showing up uh, late for school might be part of the course um, <laughs> right. and, and they get stigmatized or stereotyped as, as being uh, lazy or as Jiki said, like not into school when it's quite the opposite. Like they're, they, they've given their entire lives to be going to school and to, to make a change. Right. Uh, and one, one other, one other obstacle they're facing outside of schools is like many of them were fleeing gang violence and they come to the big cities and they find out that uh, the gangs have roots in those cities wow. and they're yeah. they're trying to to avoid uh, the gangs who are actively trying to recruit them um, on their way to school and so so they have, may need to take different routes that are longer and much more inconvenient yeah, yeah. you'll have a situation where where uh, like the a, a gang will, will post up um, on a block near the school and, and harass students as they're, as they're coming to school or leaving school. And so it's really, I mean, they're facing much more than I could ever imagine facing and, and surviving. Yeah. That really lays out, that paints a great uh, picture of just a detailed picture of, of the actual lived experiences of, of just what some of these students are going through from, you know, what we didn't even touch on is, is the, the idea of what's motivating people, these students to even come into the U S in the first place, you know what I mean? Which is actually just as important as finding out the motivations for the, the state and the police, uh, to remove them and to dissociate them from the kind of, you know, American identity. Um, Maybe just before we move on to kind of the, I'm interested to hear how you all met, um, but before we move on to that, could you, could anyone talk about like, just what is important to say about gender, the gender, gendered experience in, in the school to deportation pipeline? And then could you talk about the phase? How do, what's, what does it look like once we get from the school to to being deported or to being in the process of, of potentially being deported. What does that actually, what are the specifics if you're someone who's going through about to go through that or is could potentially 
go through that? Like, what could that possibly look like? And how does it differ from being just put in? I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with the school to prison pipeline where you can then cycle someone down and basically into a lifetime of criminality or, or to make them seem like they're a criminal just right as before or just after they've turned 18 to kind of keep them in prison. But I'm curious to see what does that look like, the transition from like, you know, say you're late to school several times, maybe, or you've loitered, maybe you've been tardy, or maybe you've drawn on the desk or something that's just so minor of a deviance. And then what happens next? So one of the things that we haven't talked about is are the actual agents in the school. Um, and by that, I mean people like teachers um, and administrators. Um, who work in this school. Um, and I really want to be very careful to preface that when I'm saying that our work has found that, it, first of all, almost everybody has good intentions, right? Nobody's the villain in their own story ever, right? right? Um, and that we found a lot of schools that were engaging in what we call a school to deportation pipeline. But we also found a lot of schools that were not, and that were in fact actively, if you will, pulling students out of that pipeline. So I want to be really clear as a scholar of education, and I know Duke and Juhi will join join in with me on this, that we don't want to paint all schools, we don't want to tar all schools with the same brush here, right? right. There are some great schools and some great school agents across this country who are doing amazing, fabulous work um, with students, and I want to honor that um, and recognize that. Um, talking about- sometimes, sometimes risking their own a lot, like, uh, licenses or, or um, yeah. breaking laws to protect students. Yeah. Maybe, maybe uh, once we, once we kind of, there's a section the kind of, kind of ending uh, of the show, you know, for, for the interviews, I really like to kind of paint a picture of kind of what the challenges that are faced, like what we're facing now, why we're facing them. And, but to me, this is, this could be really interesting before we wrap up just to talk about, you know, uh, the what a, what a possible future looks like and what a kind of what are the seeds of change that are already happening that you are kind of showing me right now so but before we get there maybe we can talk a little bit not really <laughs> we're gonna do that a lot during this oh no apologies <laughs> you're not allowed to apologize <laughs> in this show <laughs> you were saying Patricia. yeah so um so generally speaking um statistically teachers in america are white females they're white middle class females um, now, there's been some demographic shift in what teachers look like um, as baby boomers retire, what we call the graying out of the teaching force. This has accelerated um, the teaching force to be a little bit more people of color, a little bit more male over time. Um, I am expecting that we're going to hit a recession in the next few years, and then we'll probably see more male, more men join the teaching force because of that, because in times of economic recession, Generally speaking, we see more males um, join teaching because it's a stable job. Um, one of the things that I've noticed in my own research is that um, what these generally speaking white female teachers um, view as disrespect from students, perhaps the students don't necessarily see as disrespect. Right, because there's a lot of micro interactions between student and teachers that really set the stage for how the adult actors in the school are going to deal with those teachers, right? Or deal with those students, excuse right, me, right. right? Because if the teachers and the administrators 
um, have had good interactions with that student in the past, if they feel that the student is respectful and listening to them, they might cover for the kid if the kid does something that they perceive as wrong later on. But by the other side of the coin, teachers are not villains. Teachers are amazingly overworked people right. in our country and are generally doing the best they can in really stressful situations, particularly in inner city schools. Um, and they just do not have time for every single kid. It's impossible. So a lot of what happens is the teachers will triage um, and I and I mean that term literally, um, where if they feel like the kid is quote unquote worth something, if the kid is respectful, if they're trying and they're showing up in school, then they will spend more time on that kid and try and protect that child more um, from outside external school consequences um, because they feel like this is the kid who I should invest my energy in. And by the other side of the coin, if there is a student who they feel is constantly cutting up and constantly hurting the other kids learning because of that student's behavior, they're going to find a way to get rid of that kid. And they're going to find a way. And that way is probably through the use of zero tolerance policies. And it's probably through the use of getting the administration to deal with this kid and get them out of the class. Um, and the enforcers are the SROs in that case sometimes? Yeah. And because they feel like that student is hurting the learning of the other students, right? And is hurting um, that teacher's ability to focus on other students. And so... So there's kind of a utilitarian... Uh, very much. Pathos, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's not a... It's, people's choices are constrained, but they're generally rational once you understand the logic of their local social situation. And the logic of the local social, social situation for those teachers is I have to do the best I can for the most amount of students. And if that means removing a quote unquote threat in my classroom, then that's what I have to do. Right. And I think just to build off of that, you know, two things we haven't really talked about, which we talk about in our work is um, funding and the testing infrastructure. And that's partly oh, yeah. what I think Patricia is alluding to in terms of the constraints within which teachers and administrators are operating, that we know that funding is tied to testing and the testing is very standardized and systematic. So, you know, what we found is that um, definitely the administration and at the local level, how they approach the school to deportation pipeline has significant consequences for the students at that school. But I think another thing that kind of stood out to us was that everyone was aware of this pipeline. You know, either they're trying to keep students from falling into it or they're sort of using it to manage this sort of potential threat to testing scores and then eventually funding. But everyone was quite aware that this is something that occurs and that is a significant factor in how students relate to the educational space. So I think it's, you know, um, just building off of what Duke and Patricia said, that it, that's where the nuances come in, is that there's so many sort of structural factors that intercept each other in terms of funding, testing, and then the surveillance and policing being linked to the school system. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> To speak to that kind of causal mechanism or the the, the piece that uh, can jam students up, the um, the 
students who are in high school now don't um, uh, don't qualify to to didn't qualify to apply for DACA, and so they um, because they're younger than than age requirements, and so they uh, uh, like I said are are oftentimes going through immigration proceedings, waiting a, a trial to to find out if they can get some sort of legal legal status. Um, so they're in a uh, already in a in a they're put on guard. They're, they know that they're being surveilled, and um, you know we like to talk of truancy because it seems like one of the most minor offenses. But there there are times like you know students. Uh, may have a knife because the student feels like they have to protect themselves going to and from school, uh, especially with, from gang activity. And, and what and might so someone's the, living uh, situation be like? Is that something you could, you could talk about? Like where, what kind of um, homes they might be, situations, pressures, what would kind of cause that hypervigilance, you know? Well, especially, especially um, undocumented students and, and, you know, we, we, we speak of uh, um, I'm speaking of undocumented students right now, but um, I do want to point out like that uh, a large portion of the immigrant students are are documented, uh, right? We speak of uh, Central American students, Latinx students, um, uh, but also uh, Asian students um, and, and kids from the global south make up a large portion of immigrants, uh, as well as a minority of. of Students from the global north uh, and white students, but and, but to speak to to the students who are oftentimes in uh, the most precarious situation, uh, their home life is troubled. They're they're oftentimes not living with immediate family members. They um, are are living with a distant family, a distant relation who has agreed to take them in, but uh, may not have the funds to. To, to feed them, to clothe them, to care for them, uh, and and they're often living in very crowded uh, situations that uh, where they have to fend for themselves. Um, and so, you know, a student uh, walking to school has to feels feels fearful because of the gang presence, and, and carries a knife to school, and. Uh, the school administration finds out that the student has a knife and is obligated to act. And so the, the administrator can, is, is supposed to call the police or uh, get the SRO involved, um, but knows like if the police get involved, that's probably going to lead to a record that could be brought up as evidence in their uh, trial to gain immigrant status. And um, in some schools, the administrators are using that very harshly to uh, to get rid of students that are causing a problem, uh, you know, as they see as disruptive in the school, and uh, trying to remove that student in order to protect, in their minds, the the other students who are there for uh, to actually learn, right? Um, or there have been times where administrators have <clears throat> very uh, carefully, like, called a particular police officer who they know will um, not write up a report, but scare That's, the student into not bringing. Uh, yeah, I was curious to ask you about, uh, ask all of you, you know, but about what is the relationship do that teachers form with the officers 
inside the schools and if they are how do they collaborate or or compete for these different their different agendas you know what i mean and and maybe we could talk about in that in the solutions kind of part where we where i'm curious to know what your visions of possible futures are um sorry to cut you off there i just you know i wanted to you know it's, it's an interesting point the relationship is often is more often with the school administrators between between the police okay and, and the school is uh with the school administrators the the principal the uh, associate principals um the teachers themselves um their direct relationship is with the with the principals okay uh, and patricia this being her field could probably <laughs> more to that yeah yeah, generally speaking, it's the administrators who place the 911 call, um, or in some cases have made friends with, okay, so it's interesting, right, because there's a loophole in zero tolerance policies that uh, humans being humans have found and exploited, um, in that uh, zero tolerance policies don't say that you have to call 911, they say that you have to call the police. Um, so if you have the ability to form a relationship with uh, a local police officer who you think is um, friendly uh, or who will listen to you about students, you can call that local, you meaning the administrator, can call that local police officer and explain the situation. And the police officer may or may not come in, they may or may not, you know, scare the kid a little bit and maybe place them in cuffs, but then lose the paperwork. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you call 911, you get who you get. Um, and it's, you know, unlikely to be a police officer with whom you have a relationship. Um, so that becomes a really interesting way that people try and get around the zero tolerance policies. And to, to piggyback off what Duke and Juhi were saying, um, testing really matters for this, right? Testing has become, standardized testing has become the motivation, um, and the, the pressure that causes teachers and administrators to act the way they do. Okay. Yeah, and I just wanted to build off of that, you know, because I think part of what we're talking about is also um, the multiple layers of trauma that the students are navigating. You know, earlier you asked about um, how gender is significant. And certainly, I think for the young women, the additional forms of harassment are also sexual harassment, either in terms of home life or from their commute to the school, and even in terms of you know, interactions with the police. Um, So yeah, a lot of things that on the surface seem like, you know, potentially a threat to other students are actually in self-protection. And so I find that what was really, um, you know, intriguing about our work was that there's this very stark contrast of what the students are doing to pursue an education in the most ambitious way possible in every facet. And many students spoke about the responsibility to their families, you know, that they feel so much pressure, not just from being under surveillance, but from their families as potentially the sort of, you know, promise of upward mobility through their education. Um, And yet the perception of these very same students, you know, the same practices are in these very sort of deviant ways as a threat to themselves or to others. And so it's, uh, I think, building off of what Patricia and Duke said, that when we look at the institutional framing of the students and the way that they're rendered visible in these spaces, 
is, you know, in the very uh, stark contrast of what they're intending to do and what they are actually doing. Yeah. Yeah. There's been one question. It's not exactly, it's, it's related, but in a sense that just kind of, uh, that I've been thinking about, which is the national discourse on, on school shooters and the idea that we've, we've framed kind of white, the, the school shooter, as I understand it, as far as a demographic is, is kind of like a, a somewhat, maybe not privileged, but a white student, male student. And, and, but, but they're not, the white male student isn't who we're seeing filling up the jail cells and filling up the deportation pipeline. Right. Or is that, is that the case? <laughs> Can you speak to like, what, what exactly is that? Is there, is there anything to talk about there that, that is this kind of like apparatus of like, of like the, the mental illness happens only in, in the white male student, but then the students who are doing things that aren't really that um sinister like being tardy are the ones who are kind of being surveyed and and an undue amount of attention of uh, the attention apparatus is being put on them maybe this, i'm this, just ranting this is, i mean duke's gonna have the answer to this one but i just as an education scholar <laughs> would like to point out that march 2020 is the first time in close to 20 years that we've gone a month without a school shooting in america and that's because the schools were shut down wow yeah, that's that's pretty pretty well. Yeah, but I mean, I think to to address what you're pointing out, right, it's beyond the scope of our research because we weren't looking at that particular issue. But certainly, <clears throat> race, gender, all these play a factor in how um, mental illness is seen as significant. Because I mean, all, in all our interviews with students, what we find is that they're navigating very difficult circumstances and social forces that are you know, in opposition to what they would like to build in their own life. And yet, in each instance, they're very savvy in finding solutions to these problems that are structural, but they're finding individual solutions. And so I think that speaks to the notion of how these sort of um, meso and macro level systems of testing, of policing that are uh, framed as in the benefit of students as a way of creating a safe educational environment, in fact, don't actually, you know, um, serve serve students of color, as, as we know from school to prison, but also from our research. But they don't capture the, the potential and the capacity of these students, right? These are very talented and savvy students who are resourceful and Quite insightful in how they understand these spaces right maybe we can transition to talking about oh wait I, sorry yeah yeah um in speaking you know there are uh white immigrant students in u.s high schools and <clears throat> um they don't receive the same amount of scrutiny <clears throat> and that uh they uh you know in the in the way whiteness gets gets conceptualized in the United States as being synonymous with American, they're seen as more American uh, than immigrant students of color, and so they uh, they're not receiving. I talked about over the earlier like these overlapping forms of discrimination where you've got race and ethnic discrimination and gender discrimination with. Uh, immigrant status, uh, as well as class uh, discrimination. 
and the white immigrant students um, aren't receiving, you know, they may, they may face some, uh, some discrimination in, if they're, if they speak English with an accent or have limited English ability, uh, but um, they're not being targeted in the same way as, uh, as Latinx students, immigrant students are. Uh, and then uh, as well, uh, immigrants from uh, Asia and, and other parts of the global South who are being othered. And so when, when the white immigrant students enter the school, um, they're coming in with, with some privilege that immigrant students of color don't have. Right. Yeah. So maybe um, on that note, maybe we can transition to talking about the methodologies used and kind of like if you like a meta conversation about like the actual process of conducting the research that you did and what kind of uh, what you were feeling, what you were noticing, observations you made, um, you know, that you could talk to us about what that actually looks like on the, what does this research look like on the ground, the process of of the book, maybe you can talk more about what it looks like to co-collaborate, um, like a three person, if not more, uh, collaboration, you know what I mean? And yeah, what has that journey been like? How did you all meet? Um, can you walk us through some of that story? Anyone who wants to start? <laughs> um, sure. I can, I can speak to how we all met. So as I mentioned earlier, my, um, previous research was about, you know, the oil industry and migrants and, um, so I had mentioned to a mentor of mine, Dr. Paris, that I was noticing these things with students um, and their their you know experience in the school system. And he mentioned Duke that uh, Duke is working on race and racial formation. And so we we got introduced, and then Duke um, introduced me to Patricia. So I think that is really kind of the origin story of how we came together <laughs> okay, <laughs> to, nice. um, you know, look into this issue from like a multifaceted net lens. And that's been, um, you know, academia is a solitary sort of industry, but this has been such a pleasure to work with these two because I think every time we talk, there are new ideas that come up and we're able to look at the same thing in such novel ways. So it's, uh, yeah, I think that's how we found what we did because we work well together. Yeah. Can you, can you all talk about just your personal journeys too, as like, cause obviously we have the idea of you, we're just seeing you all three at the end of this journey now that you've met and you've already done, you know, this research, but maybe what, um, you know, you, you also said you stumbled upon this, the school to deportation pipeline it's not like this was you know 10 20 years in the making of like all right this is going to be a thing it's going to be specifically about the school to deportation pipeline it's like this kind of came about through all these your different journeys somehow and then here we are so maybe maybe someone um could talk about their own personal why did you go into you know academics or why why kind of the these different fields that you're in <laughs> Duke, you're up. <laughs> um, the about twenty years ago, I was uh, traveling the country. I had intended to be a priest, actually, and decided that that wasn't uh, the career for me. When I decided I was agnostic or atheist, right. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> a little bit of a conflict. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, 
and I was traveling the country looking like uh, I knew I liked academia. I wanted to go into academia and looking for a field. And I was interviewing professors whose books I had read and I ended up in a waiting room. I hadn't been a sociology major, but I uh, was waiting in a waiting room to speak to a professor. And I saw a brochure that said, want to change the world? If so, study sociology. <laughs> and so even though, <laughs> even though I was not a sociology major in undergrad, I decided I'll, I'll get a PhD in this. That sounds cool. No, oh, you just went right for it. You were like, all right, I'm just going to go all the way. Because <laughs> I was like, that's me. I want to I wanna change the world. And, um, you know, I had, uh, like, grown up kind of looking at, um, uh, at inequality and, and uh, racial discrimination and, and class discrimination, gender discrimination without the lens. And so I... I found sociology and started as a PhD student and I found like, oh, this is, this is where I was supposed to be and like um, studying what I think are the, the problems that are most pressing in the world today and looking for solutions to those problems. And uh, that led me to, to meet Juhi through, uh, through her mentor and, and, and friend, uh, Dr. Arthur Paris. Uh, it led me to doing a postdoc uh, where Patricia was studying and making that connection and finding finding folks with uh, similar goals of like, let's not just study this for the sake of studying it, but let's do something that's going to make a difference in the world. Yeah, incredible. So Patricia, maybe you could give a little bit of your origin story. Uh, so I um, actually studied classical studies in undergrad. Classical studies, okay. So we had a we had a potential priest, and now we had a potential classical. <laughs> <laughs> um, and got into sociology uh, too through actually it was a, a general ed requirement. Just loved it, um, and decided to to do a major in that too. Um, and then I uh, joined Teach for America. Uh, I'm a was a Teach for America core member um, in Philadelphia. I taught in inner city Philly. Uh, middle school um, and I realized how important schools were um, for forming people uh, you know I mentioned before that I study a lot about morality in schools um, but schools do more than than teach knowledge and skills they teach people what it means to be a good person um, and whether or not that's through formal means or informal means depends a lot on the school um, but I realized how important schools were for the formation. Um, I sound like a politician when I say this, but for the, for the formation of people's character. Um, and so I realized that I could have a relatively limited impact in the classroom, um, teaching, you know, 13, 14, 15 year olds. Uh, so went to grad school uh, to study um, sociology of education. Uh, did my dissertation actually on Teach for America core members. Um, and how schools actually are the things that form teachers, right? We have this, what I think is a horrible myth in our society that, you know, teachers should, should just be, if they're just really good people and they try hard enough and they're renegades and they fight the system, then that's what we need to change the education system in America. And God, I hate that. That's horrible. What horrible pressure to put on teachers, right? right. Um, and so for me, it's more looking at schools as organizations and schools as systems that cause behaviors 
for the people who are in those systems. Right. Uh, and then uh, became a professor. Um, really love what I do and help uh, my undergrad and graduate students go in and look at schools too. Awesome. I, mean, I can share more about. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you should you should outline more of your uh, origin. Um, so actually, I was in finance. Um, I was trained in econ and finance. I was working in um, in London for a while, and uh, I realized as much as I love numbers and math, I don't think I love <laughs> what I do. Um, so I actually was more interested in kind of the you know, the concepts behind economic theory and things like that. So I went into labor and policy for a while. I was working abroad in different places. And that's kind of how I started reading these academics that were writing about issues that I cared about. So it was the first time that I was introduced to a world where people want to think about, you know, all the systems that go behind individual behavior. Right. And that's how I found my way to academia. And, um, and you know, and respect to immigration. Um, so I'm, I'm an immigrant, you know, I grew up in India, then we moved to Canada, then we moved to the US. So I think firsthand, I've seen how your social context impacts your life choices and your opportunities. But also just because of my work in labor and policy, I'm always fascinated by the politics of mobility, you know, how where you are and how your position impacts so many of the things that you have access to. And so those are the kind of questions that I'm really drawn to is in terms of, um, you know, how are people being um, regulated? How are they being policed and under surveillance? And what is that, how does that impact them individually, but then as a collective? So yeah, I found my way to these wonderful people. <laughs> yeah. You, we had a potential hyper-capitalist here. We had the possible <laughs> classical studies and the priests all pivoting course right <laughs> and how and you know how much effect these two guys have had on my uh academic career over the trajectory over the last eight years right um i certainly don't think i'd be where i am today without being able to have their ears uh and brains to draw upon yeah yeah it seems like you've you've chosen the right people here you've chosen the right people <laughs> <laughs> so maybe just to kind of wrap up i'm interested in hearing what you envision a you know i'm really interested in concepts of of shifting power what what are we've already talked a lot about the mechanisms of power and what that landscape looks like and how it's being navigated but maybe what does justice look like in this particular case from the perspective of the people who are this not only the teachers who may be fighting for the rights of their students maybe justice for the teachers themselves, maybe there are administrators and even, dare I say, police officers who are who want to be on the right side of history as, you know, we put it, you know, it's just like, what what is a liberate, what does liberation look like in this? What could it look like? Honestly, what is it? What is happening now? But then also what if there was a if there was a vision of the future that was like, okay, this is something we can stand behind. What does that look like to each of you? Um, who, who wants to I go? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I feel like, um, I mean, that's a that's a really important question, right? What does liberation look like? And and when I look at our work and its potential, I see it in three different levels, like the individual, the meso, and the macro. In terms of the individual, I think what's very profound 
are the stories of the students and their resilience and their insight. You know, I think that is the side of, um, yeah, students of color, immigrants of color that don't get highlighted in terms of their capacity that's being sidelined through these processes. And so I hope for other students that read it and just the general public, they're able to see that the amount of potential that is um, uh, that that is already there, it's already present, that mm, could be heightened yeah. through our education system. You know, so it's not something that is just absent that needs to be cultivated from scratch. Um, and then uh, in terms of the meso level, I, I do think that the stories of student uh, teachers and administrators that have kind of, you know, taken a stance and are trying to keep students away from falling into this sort of spiral of the school to deportation is significant and I hope it inspires other teachers and administrators to see that they have agency within these sort of constrained environments, that there are other ways to approach the same problem um, and that the, perhaps they can um, work more as a collective, you know, that they're not alone in fighting this fight. Um, and I think that's significant. And as far as the macro, certainly, you know, uh, I think part of it is this intersection of funding and surveillance and policing that right. we really need to address. Is that um, to to show the kind of negative consequences of how these um, overlap to diminish the opportunities for students is also to show that what could be possible if um, we had different types of infrastructure for funding our public schools, you know, and how significant that is. Right. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know, Patricia, if you want to, you, you were, you were about to talk earlier just about kind of the relationship between like administrators and teachers and, and you were kind of really adamant to point out that there are teachers who are choosing, who are not aggravating this, this deportation pipeline system. They're actually working against it actively. Sure. So. One of the, the factors that we found that was most, uh, uh, had the most um, strength uh, in determining um, how teachers and administrators were going to act was how much they feared standardized testing and the effects of standardized tests on their schools, right? So we know from the research that uh, Immigrant students, generally speaking, score lower on standardized tests for a variety of reasons, um, usually having to do with, with language um, or possibly uh, not necessarily understanding what the tests are asking, right? There, there's a lot of factors that could cause somebody to not do well on a standardized test. Um, we found that the administrators and the teachers who, and the teachers who were protected by those administrators um, from fear of the tests generally speaking, we're gonna act to try and protect their students from the deportation pipeline. Um, however, those schools in which the pressures of the tests were so keenly felt by the teachers were gonna be schools in which the teachers would <clears throat> consciously or unconsciously act to take the quote unquote threat hmm. of a lower score out of their classroom. Um, and since the immigrant students are generally associated with lower scores, and yes, the teachers know that, they're not stupid. Um, that means that the immigrant students would be the, the, they would be looking for ways to get them out of their classrooms. And you know, I kind of understand that, right? Because 
if you have a ton of turnover um, and you've got somebody who entered your classroom even two weeks before the test, the teacher is right in saying that why should he or she be held responsible for that student's test score when they've only had them for a couple of weeks? It doesn't make any sense at all, right? Right. Um, so there's a lot of factors here. Um, and I uh, study, like, I understand the argument behind standardized tests. I get it. I get the idea that we need to see how schools are doing. We need to have some sort of metric to be able to compare. I completely understand that argument. My problem with the way that we've set up standardized tests is that they have, their teeth are way too large and their teeth are way too poised over the jugular of schools and teachers. Okay. And the mechanism by which this usually happens is through funding and sometimes even through telling teachers that you're going to lose your job or you're not going to get a bonus or you're not going to get this or that if the students do well on a test. Um, and that, in my opinion, is one of the great injustices that we have done in American schools and to students of color and to immigrant students of color, geez, to all students, right? I mean, this is just not the way to set up a school system that cares about the edification and education of its students. Right. So, so the people who are fighting actively to, to maybe end, if, well, I mean, one of my questions would be, is there, could there be an end to the school to deportation pipeline? And if so, these mechanisms of maybe dismantling the way the, if, maybe if not the tests themselves, um, but just the power that they have. And then are there other mechanisms that are like very specific, in, uh, maybe policies or, you know, one, one thing that I'm, I'm curious about is can we, uh, you know, I don't think we need uh, SROs in, in our schools, but maybe if I was someone who was in, I'm not involved in that. So my opinion isn't really relevant, but as a strategy, I'm just looking for what are the strategies and, and policies and things that could be used and organized to like say, okay, here's one tangible thing we're going to change. And that's okay. We're going to remove the SROs. We're going to change the weight of the standardized test scores and who they affect maybe in how they affect not only students, but teachers. And then also maybe look closely and have what's the checks and balances that can say, Oh wait, how now that we've, we know it's a fact that, that Latinx students or any immigrant students are being affected by this process. And we've, we've seen the stories happen over and over again. Now maybe we can actually cut that pipeline off. You know what I mean? Like how uh, maybe Duke, I don't know if you have, have some, some words on what your your vision of of a potential or maybe not just your vision in all three of your visions but the visions that you're seeing through the research you've done with the teachers and the students but um the things i would speak to come out of uh these incredible the research that i've been doing with julie and patricia um but i think one place to look at is comprehensive immigration reform um and to, I mean, we're, we're speaking about uh, immigrant students who are in the US school system right now. There are tons of uh, school-aged children who are in concentration camps right now. Uh, and you know, we're, we can't even touch that segment of the population because um, they're literally locked up. And uh, we have to close the detention centers. 
we have to streamline the process of uh, integrating um, children and youth into, into society and giving them uh, legal status. Um, and uh, we have to uh, reform immigration to give uh, a, a, a better work visa program, a better uh, student visa program that doesn't have backlogs of years and years um, that allows um, both youth and adults to enter the country uh, with a legal status and contribute to society and, and benefit from society um, without all of the hurdles and, and, and bureaucratic violence and, and actually police and, and um, border patrol violence that, uh, that people are facing. And so we need comprehensive immigration reform. Um, we need uh, the police out of schools and they need to re be replaced with uh, social workers and counselors and more teachers right. and better paid teachers that um, uh, that can better serve the students and recognize that the infractions that students are having are related to this myriad of problems that, that they're facing and um, the criminal justice system and the, the uh, immigration system, they've got one tool, lock them up or kick them out. Yeah. And we need professionals that work with students that have a multitude of tools that say, oh, you're facing uh, food insecurity, or you're facing a, an emotionally abusive situation at home, right. or you're being exploited at work. And how do we address all of these issues and not think that you are the problem but you are actually the, the victim of the problems and, and fix those problems uh, instead. And I think in the process, um, you know, we will do what's right for, for youth. Uh, we'll do what's right for immigrant youth, um, but we'll also do what's right for teachers in, in getting teachers more support and getting teachers better pay and uh, more respect in society. Um, and, you know, I hate to say it, but reduce the policing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Reduce the policing that's happened. So reducing policing. I don't involves... hate to say that, actually. Like... <laughs> Love to say it, yeah. Um, I, think, I think we know the value that police bring, and it's, it's very low in comparison to maybe social workers, therapists, teachers, all the people who are, who are these kind of problem solvers of real problems and not just just these makeshift these these kind of people put there to check the box off to say something's been done and it's been pushed into a system so I, one thing that i came to mind was the idea of in this vision of the future i wonder what the role of of, of maybe citizen and documented parents of students could be as allies to shift some power and privilege in the direction of so maybe I'm thinking of strategies like teachers unionizing to like you have the teachers imagine they're all in a, in one situation teachers who are pushing for not only their rights and higher higher wages and more teachers more social workers but somehow collaborating or at least if if the parents of the students who are not the ones under siege in in both the the prison and deportation pipeline are able to put pressure on the administration and support the the 
teachers as well, what would that look like? Is that is that a part of the solution? Do, do, do parents have much say in this whole system? Yeah. Depends on who the parents are. Depends on who the parents are. Okay. Yeah, so I was going to say that, you know, a lot of the frameworks that we're looking for actually do exist. They exist in private schools where students uh-huh. are seen as having like unbound, limitless potential. And, you know, it's just a matter of finding the right educational conditions to bring that out of them. And part of that, you know, I think what Patricia perhaps was alluding to is that that the parents have much more sort of leverage in um, creating a learning environment. And I think that's all what we're talking about here, that is this a learning environment or is this an environment in which, you know, the hunger games <laughs> right that's what it seems more like yeah and so part of that is i think there is a lot of potential for you know teachers to act as a collective administrators to act as a collective and we've seen that in in our own research and then also for parents to be listened to because i think what we found in schools is that if parents are working and they're not present at pta meetings or if their students are late that automatically gets read as well a lack of value for education as opposed to an an extra value for education that you're investing everything you have in making sure your kids can be in a school system right so you know the overlap of like racial frameworks and xenophobic frameworks as it funnels into how students are valued um is something that I think it's certainly possible because we see it in other spaces that are much more resourced. So it's not an impossible task. And I think there are two parts of it that I see as significant. One is the decoupling of immigration enforcement um, from the local and the national, right? To, to perhaps return back to the Reagan era even earlier, because this has been happening for a long time of, um, reconceptualizing what we think about as immigration enforcement and security and not all of them as one conflated thing. Um, And would this happen maybe more on a state basis rather than a federal basis you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. And that funding being tied to um, participating in immigration enforcement at a municipal level and a state level. Wow. Yeah. So the other thing is that, you know, in terms of testing and evaluation, the students that were in our research, they have a multiplicity of skills. You know, they have a, a lot of experience, they're very versatile and savvy, but that doesn't translate into the actual testing. And I think part of that is what becomes a mismatch as well, is that perhaps another point of intervention is what are we actually evaluating in terms of, you know, measuring capacity of these students um, and to expand yeah. that as we do in private schools of, you know, more problem solving oriented evaluations and more sort of application and creativity based uh, learning environments. Right. I think a lot of this is that um, we've moved away from a culture of trusting professionals. Um, Teachers are professionals, police are professionals. And a lot of the police with whom I speak don't want to be in schools. They don't want to be doing this. Right. They, they would rather spend their time elsewhere. Now, I'm not going to say 100 percent of police feel that way. Like, obviously not. But the fact that we've created these laws that hamstring professionals, teachers, police, administrators, all that. Scientists. Um, 
Yeah. Um, if nothing else, maybe, I don't know, maybe I sound like a, a cockeyed optimist here, but maybe this quarantine will teach us in how hard teachers are working for their students right now, that maybe we can trust teachers and maybe we can allow people to do their job to the best of their ability and not try and force them into cookie cutters. Right. Yeah. You, you kind of beat me to, to my follow-up question, kind of the wrap-up, which was that how do you feel this whole, you know, it has, I think, somewhat to do with technology. And I know I'm kind of, I'm keeping you all here. Maybe I, if you if you have the time to go into this last question, which is, so if it's not too convoluted, we have a surveillance state emerging, which is a new, to me, a new form of government run by Google, Facebook, Amazon, and the like, you know what I mean? And so this attention economy has a lot to do with how I think teaching, it will shape teaching because now in the education system, because of the fact that now we've seen uh, in, a, in, a, in a state of crisis like this, now we're relying more on technology. We rely on platforms like Zoom, like Facebook to go, to go live to, to, because they have power and they have, the, they have the budget and the resources, and they've actually made us dependent on their technology. So, I mean, I don't want to force my opinion on anyone else. I'm not a techno-utopian, but I do feel like um, I, I want to leave space open while we may need to use these platforms. Do you have any uh, either criticisms, like both the good and the bad, the pros and the cons of how will this shape teaching, this, this whole crisis? And... What should we be weary of or, or push back against in the process? <laughs> Dude, <That's tough> question. <laughs> <laughs> if there's no, I know if you don't have anything to, to just talk, talk on, it's just, you know. I mean, I think one thing that stands out to me is that in this moment, you know, where things have gone virtual and people aren't, and sheltered homestay, that the the things that could have been ignored that were sort of a, a immigrant rights issue or a people of color issue of how your outside life impacts your education are becoming more and more salient. You know, right. and I think so in terms of you know deportations are still happening um, and they're in fact being expedited where you're there's very minimal detention stays just you're being sent back um and that's or, changed and somewhere even, where it wasn't your home in the first place like the so the 45th administration has has just like blocked all uh, all immigration is that true like just temporarily like i know obviously this is i try not to give him too much focus but this whole thing i mean the past four years have been just the escalation of hatred and against immigrants obviously goes without saying i feel like kind of frames a lot of our conversation uh, in a way but i'm curious you started this research before the before the 45th administration right so how do you feel do you have any any concerns any hopes um going forward as we come up to an elect electoral kind of pivoting point possibly i mean you know, I'm an eternal optimist. I'm always hopeful <laughs> yeah. that, you know, change is a constant. And throughout, <laughs> we have seen so many um, oppressive and exclusionary institutions be systematically challenged. And so I feel like where there is um, 
struggle, there's solidarity. And if anything, what our work in this moment shows is that, you know, working for immigrant rights, working for the rights of people of color is not just a minority issue. It's something that benefits like the quality of education as a whole, the quality of citizens as a whole. And, you know, um, and so my, my hope is that in this moment of increased surveillance and increased immigration apparatus for the exclusion of people of color, that there is an equally salient common collective experience of how these, these policies are impacting us, you know, whether it's directly or indirectly. And that perhaps can allow for a foundation for something else to be generated, you know. Right. So I guess the, uh, yeah, Duke, you had something? Well, uh, to respond to two things. Um, one in terms of like, what has the COVID-19 pandemic done for education and immigration? And uh, I do have fears that uh, in terms of education, you know, this move to online education and virtual classrooms is going to be a part of a, a bigger privatization push that uh, that we've yeah. been seeing from before. Um, Naomi Klein wrote a great book, Shock Doctrine, about how uh, neoliberal capitalists use um, tragedies like this, um, catastrophes like this, to to institute new policies. And I was doing research in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, and you saw the school system get gutted and replaced with uh, you know. Uh, a charter system that's a, a you know private influenced privately funded system that moves one of the core pieces of our democracy education out mm -hmm. of a democratic field and and into a privatized uh area which i think threatens democracy and so i fear the same thing will happen could happen um as we move towards online classes the idea well we don't need uh, teachers in the classroom and that we could um, start recording recording classroom sessions and, and students could watch videos and and start to to move away from the public school model and the in-person model towards a privatized model um, right and I think that's very scary and I think um, that would also impact immigrant students because it would uh, move them farther away from many of the teachers and administrators who do care for them and who do want to see them succeed. Um, and they would, yeah. the immigrant students would have less access uh, through, through um, a digital interface. It also has class implications. And many of the immigrant students are mm -hmm. facing those class challenges of not having a computer, not having internet access. Um, and so, you know, this could be very scary for and yeah like a home environment to actually study like have the studious uh quiet or you know just a, a place where you're where you're able sorry to interrupt you just just to piggyback on that same thing i'm just imagining a scenario where you've got the same way that we're trying to reopen not we but that people are trying to rush to reopen the economy because there is a creative class and an elite class who actually don't really need to do the hands-on work that will get them sick and make them end up in a hospital. Maybe the same way in this particular case, students uh, of color and, and undocumented students might be living in situations where actually school was the best place for them to do 
a lot of their learning because it was not only a social environment, but a, an environment where they were able to uh, be free from some of the things you were talking about earlier, whether it's gang um, pressures or just family, you know, sexual violence or any, any number of like class and economic like pressures that like make you not have a home where you can just jump on the internet and have a, have a beautiful uh, curated experience. Like we'd been led to believe possibly by the Silicon Valley, um, you know, entrepreneur class. So yeah, yeah, that's kind of stuff I'm concerned about as well. So one of, one of the we've been talking a lot about. Go ahead, go ahead Duke. <laughs> well, I was gonna I was gonna change topics. Uh, so go ahead, Patricia, and then I'll, I'll come back. Uh, we've been talking a lot about K through twelve students. Um, I have a lot of. We are a Hispanic. Texas Tech is a Hispanic serving institution. Um, I have a lot of immigrant college students um, who with whom I, I work every day, um, and I am really concerned. Uh, for them, um, not only in terms of food insecurity and in terms of homelessness, but also in terms of they've lost a place where they were safe and able to interact with people. Um, right. The beauty, in my opinion, the beauty of the, the gen ed requirements that we have in American colleges is that we make students take at least one class outside of their comfort zone, right? Yeah. Um, and so I get a lot of people who are, for example, engineering majors or agriculture majors or anything like that who walk into my introduction sociology class and are just like, oh my God, kill me now, right? And I know that, they know that. We're, there are no false pretenses here. But the beauty about having to force them to interact with me um, for three hours a week for a semester is that maybe they get a little seed in their mind that, you know what, maybe she's right about some of this stuff. Like maybe... Maybe the way that we have these structures set up in society is not the best way to do it. Right. And I think a lot of the leverage that I have with those students and with interacting with my students who are immigrant students is that personal, hey, she's a human too and she understands this stuff that I don't think necessarily works quite as well um, if going through a screen that they could or a YouTube lecture that they could just press fast forward on. Um, and so I am more concerned about that and for my, at the collegiate level, um, not more yeah. concerned about students, but also concerned for my, my college level students. Yeah. I wanted to maybe ask you all about that. Cause you mentioned the concept of trust of, of needing. I think we live in the past four years, at least if not the continuation, the kind of exposition of an age where now we don't need to trust scientists. We don't need to trust the people who we traditionally valued as like legitimate authority figures that are not seeking power, but seeking truth of some sort and education is one of those fronts. And so now what I've heard us in seen in certain things and in, in readings is that like people, this push for that you were talking about, Duke, the push for like private education is now, um, especially there's, there's also this, this criticism and backlash for higher education, especially in the age of where people are seeing, they're looking at the Zoom calls, maybe the parents and like, what am I, what am I paying this for there? This is the teacher in there. You know, it's like, let's like my background. I don't, it doesn't matter what I do. My background does not look flattering. And so it's just like, it just, it delegitimizes people who otherwise, this is not their context. You know what I mean? It's not the context in which uh, actually should reflect upon them. And so now people are saying, well, you know, we don't need a higher education. And now I'm going to withdraw my student from this class because they're not getting 
that like this is what the teacher was doing the whole time you know but it actually is a false uh dichotomy a representation of that so i'm just rambling here but if you have something to jump on no i, I didn't mean to cut you off i um no I, the the two points that you made in terms of the um like surveillance capitalism as like a legitimate foundation for you know citizenship and education and structuring society and this moment of yeah that like you know that i guess they're they're universities that are being sued by parents and this is not a quality education and i, I do believe that they go hand in hand right that um the delegitimization of science research um sort of education model to what it means to be a citizen to have a healthy democracy is very much aligned in the interests of a surveillance capitalist state where um, who controls information and knowledge both historically and today has profound consequences for how people have access to resources and opportunities. You know, I think what Patricia was mentioning about planting that seed, um, we're talking about critical thinking. We're talking about being having a capacity to question your lived environment, question the knowledge that you receive. It's not simply, do you get this block of information about math and science and English, and, or do you get this block of information, which is what it's being reduced to. It's more about you know, cultivating a trust in the learning process. And eventually, I mean, this is something I share with my students is that you're gonna have to be your own compass. You know, I'm your teacher for today and for the semester and a few years, but you're going to be your own teacher in time. So how do you develop a capacity to think in innovative ways for yourself without simply just being a consumer of knowledge? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, if do you have a, yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. Well, can I pick up on a, on a theme you, you said earlier about? You know, oh, no, no picking up. We're, we're done. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> well, um, yeah. Uh, Trump and the Trump administration receive a lot of attention because of the focus on building walls and the detention uh, centers um, that are that are uh, putting kids in concentration camps, uh, and those are terrible policies and terrible terrible ideas. But I don't, unfortunately, I don't see that either Republicans or Democrats have the solution. Uh, the Obama administration had record numbers of. Um, deportations. Yeah. Um, the you know Bush, uh, Bush and Clinton both militarized the border and uh, threatened threatened migrants who were crossing the border and using increasingly violent tactics to um, disperse and scatter migrants and um, and it you know uh, each administration uh, that we've had just seems to want to up the ante and, and, and make uh, more draconian immigration policies and um, further threaten the lives of immigrants, which, uh, by the way, uh, degrades the lives of citizens in the United States. Um, you know, the, the tougher border policies actually increase the number of people permanently residing in the United States because it, it's such a life-threatening event to cross the border that they don't Want to risk that again and so they stay in the united states mm -hmm. and they become an exploitable labor force that uh that drives down the cost of, of labor in, in manual labor and in working class jobs that makes it harder for 
U.S. citizens to compete for those jobs because they are competing, U.S. citizens are competing against uh, immigrants who are severely exploited. And in a for-profit economy, you're going to choose the labor that costs the least amount of money. And so Democrats and Republicans alike uh, have contributed to this problem. And then, uh, and it's not, uh, and it's, it's hurting immigrants and it's, it's hurting U.S. citizens at the same time. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That is a great, that's kind of a great um, kind of closing statement because it really touches on how this isn't just about like this small, this isn't just this, I think someone could probably listen or hear the word school or deportation pipeline and not really realize all of the, the, the network of power structures it's implicated in and how actually it comes back even to people who may be proponents of it and realize that it's actually affecting their lives in a negative way. So my wrap up question is, is usually this, um, but in this case, maybe just one each, do you have a, do you have a book that you're reading that is bringing you any joy, any sense of joy in this time that you could speak about? And maybe, um, Juhi, you could start us off. Yeah. <laughs> maybe while you think, could someone tell us where we can find more about your work and this, the work that you're doing and the title and, you know, just kind of, or if there's a working title. Sure. So we have, uh, I'll, I'll let the you, rest of you think of your books, the book question. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we have, uh, two articles out about this right now. Uh, one in the annals of, uh, political and social science and the other one in urban education, um, that both have the words. If you are a Google person looking up, if you look up school to deportation pipeline in Google scholar, they'll pop right up, uh, as awesome. the first results. Uh, and we're currently working on a book with NYU Press um, about uh, a more in-depth, a larger look at the school to deportation pipeline. Um, and we've been doing research in seven different cities across America, uh, ranging from um, cities in California to Texas uh, to New York and Connecticut um, to see how this works in different schools over about the last eight years or so. Um, so that's been really interesting to look at. We have a few hundred interviews that, of, of data that we have that we've been mining. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's really powerful. powerful. All right, I'll, I'll go. <laughs> so I've been reading this book about uh, Rabindranath Tagore. He was a famous freedom fighter during the independence movement. He also um, wrote India's national anthem. He's a poet, scholar, activist. And um, I was really... Um, <laughs> So in this moment in the past few years, I've just been intrigued by these pivotal moments in history where, you know, there's been mass revolutions and a decolonization process. And so I've always been intrigued by well, what were the thinkers at the time? How were they, you know, when they were in the thick of it before we knew there would be a victory, how did they come to that sort of conclusion? How did they work together? So it's a collection of his essays, but it's all about, um, yeah, what does a liberation mean when you don't have it, right? And I think that's something right. that um, a lot of activists and scholars speak to that, like, you know, Angela Davis has written about that, like, struggle is a constant and you have to continually work to a freer society. Yeah. So that's right. been an interesting read. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, I've been reviewing The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein. 
uh, COVID <laughs> pandemic uh, concerned that uh, that this is another catastrophe that could be a time for a neoliberal capitalist to, to impose their will. Right. Yeah, I listened to a little, she put out a little kind of like Naomi Klein's address, the coronavirus capitalism was her like, it was like a 10 minute YouTube video where she kind of, she she just kind of reminds people like, yeah, what was it, 15 years ago? She's like, I wrote this book. It's basically talking about this kind of thing. Be careful, like watch, watch, uh, pay attention to prisons, pay attention to immigration, pay attention to all the little things, pay attention to abortion rights, you know, yeah, stuff like that. that. So... Yeah, that's um, awesome. So I have, seen that. I'll, I'll try and send it to you guys after this. Nice. Thank you. Um, I have small children, so I've been reading a lot of like Good Night Moon. <laughs> like, Good Night Moon. Not okay. gonna lie. There you go. And uh, that's Give sort of overall, <laughs> overall trends. Uh, yeah. This is not um, this whole pandemic situation and what we're on like day 46 or something of quarantine. Not that I'm counting. Yeah. Um, is not doing great things for my ability to read stuff other than students' papers uh, and children's books. Right. Uh, not going to lie. Hey, I um, love children's books. They, there's yeah. a certain wisdom to them that is, you know. Uh, Harry Potter has been very helpful to me in the last few weeks. <laughs> there you go. Uh, yep. Uh, but, I mean, uh, Michelle Alexander's New Jim Crow is a book that my students always love. Um, and uh, I've been yeah. spending some time reading... Um, uh, um, so my students are going to laugh when they hear me say this, but reading Durkheim's moral education, um, because I think that a lot of the stuff that he talked about, what more than a hundred years ago, in terms of how schools can be the nursery for the, the, um, whole country, um, and for citizenship is actually still really applicable and still really important today. Excellent. Well, is there anything that we didn't get to touch on that you're that you're like, wow, why didn't we talk about this? This is, you know, um, and maybe if there isn't now, maybe we can get an, you know, at some point, whether it's a year from now or before then, we can get an update as we pass through or transition into some formation of a new, you know, this post. Uh, and an intra post um, pandemic times and maybe you all will have have uh, an update on your book and, and where you are in your journeys so yeah thank you all for coming on the show today yeah thank you for having me great yeah. <laughs> awesome <laughs>